We are recording with the one and only Mr. Michael Vecchione, who's been on here. I was actually, I'm going through all the old Spotify episodes. I got to, like, update some stuff. Whenever I have to, like, update something, like, in it for the whole library or if I find a new website where I can upload all the episodes to, it's just a total yeah. undertaking because it's 1,200 episodes now. So I always... You know, whether I'm uploading to something new or I'm going back and adding like a new, you know, join the Patreon link to everything. I break it down into bite size. I'm like, just do 10 a day. And it takes like 12, it takes like 120 days. But I always, whenever I, whenever this happens, it happens like once or twice a year, just, just whatever. And right. it, uh, it's always, I always do kind of enjoy the journey because I end up going back and looking at every single episode, seeing the thumbnail, seeing how it's progressed. And it often leads me to like inviting old guests on who I haven't talked to in a while. But it also shows me kind of like it's like going into the old testament of the podcast and i do remember and i start to see who are like the original people and i was i don't think it was even your first episode but i was looking through it and you were episode 260 and that this is episode 1268 so that was over a thousand episodes ago so for anybody listening mike's mike's one of the founding fathers whatever that's worth i don't know if that's a compliment or an insult but uh (laughs) you're one of the ogs yeah, so thank you, thank you, thank you. It's a pleasure and it's an honor. So thank you, sir. Um, happy to have you. Happy to be back. And um, and it's been a it's been a little while, but uh, you know, but it's good to good to be here. Beautiful. So, um, and and of course, thank you again for for having me. You know, it's nice to have uh, to have an outlet when you're when you're trying to sell books. Mm-hmm. It's terrific to have some somebody like yourself. You know, give me the opportunity to talk about the books, and hopefully, it spurs sales which is um you know which is important but um but they're not it wouldn't be sales for, uh the, the sales would be would be well worthwhile to the you know to your listeners and to your viewers yeah. because i i think quite frankly i know it's a, they're my books but i think they're they're pretty good and i'll so, and I'll, I'll i'll plug and anyone, anyone that knows that knows that the uh, you know anyone remotely familiar with knows with the podcast is that the the highest compliment I can ever give anyone is having them on the podcast. And the next highest compliment is having them on again because it's a one man show. And if I have someone on for a book, let alone repeated times, that is don't listen to my words. Look at my actions. I've had Mike on here who knows how many times. And I think this is the third or fourth episode for this book. And it's a book I have plugged for you. I don't get a penny from anything. It doesn't matter. It's a fallen angel. And, uh, you know, it just let yesterday I was talking to a, I was talking to a, a nice woman, Holly Renee, and it kind of, I actually kind of tied in fallen angel and like the idea of visualizing either the thing you want to be or the thing you don't want to be. And to me that today have a little anxiety, just hit me in the morning, went to the gym and I always try to, take an abstract idea or feeling like anxiety and I try to anthropomorphize it. I see it as a person. I see it as a bully. I see it as someone trying to bring me down and I'm like, fuck that person. And it helps. It legitimately does. And good. why good. I like fallen angel is because it is the encapsulation of the, the human condition and the more dark elements of it and is there a common thread in these and that's what mike did he took real world experience real shit this is real shit and tied in really i mean you anthropomorphized a demonic well not a demonic figure the demonic figure the Satan. demonic figure yeah. and that's what yeah. the book is so with that i'm gonna shut up and let mike i'm gonna let you take it away and take it in any direction you'd like good well you know just to bring your um to bring people up to date and also to to educate people who may have not heard about Fallen Angel before, you're correct. The um, the book, everything in, in the book and in book two, which will be out probably in September, and hopefully in book three, which will be out next uh, next year sometime, um, The every crime that I discuss or every crime that the prosecutor in the case, in the books, fights um, and, and tries to bring uh, justice for, um were real cases they were all mine and um you know and that's kind of the genesis of the story of the of the books to begin with i um i had all of these uh these cases and and (laughs) i was a prosecutor for a very long time for over 30 years and i was a defense attorney for about 10 or 12. so i i have done a lot in the in in terms of investigations and representing people and and uh and trying cases and uh, and i and i've done as you well know before Fallen Angel, had done, I had done four books, and uh, they were all true crime books based on cases that I did. 
except for one. One was a was a book that was written about a um, uh, an agent for the uh, for the Veterans Administration, federal government inspector general, and it was a book about doctors and nurses who were killing people, and he was the investigator. But other than that book, by the way, the name is behind the murder. Yeah, with Bruce Sackler. That's how yeah, I. That's uh, how I got in touch with you. That's how Bruce. you got to know me. Yeah. Yep. And um, and, and other than that book, the others are all about my cases and about instances in my life that um, that I I thought your in, your people would be interested in. I mean, they watch television and true crime is a, and movies and true crime is a big um, a big genre for people. Well, these those books were about were were true crime books. Then I had I had a point where um, I had dozens of stories and uh, and I my idea was to write a um, an anthology kind of a a compilation of each of the stories. So it would be a book of short stories until I started talking to the book agents that I had been dealing with. And they said to me, essentially, Mike, people who are fans of this genre don't want short stories. They want beginning, middle and end. And um, and while you could do that with a short story, they're talking he's talking about expanded beginning, middle and end. So he said, if you find they said, if you find a way to tie all of those cases together with a a common thread, then you were talking about something. And, and I had this old idea from a while back. Um, my ex shouldn't say ex, my former writing partner, who's now deceased, Jerry Schmetter, and I had always talked about um, about this Kind of this 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 idea of having the ultimate evil come to Brooklyn. I mean, he was the spokesperson for the district attorney. I was in charge of homicide, then rackets, and um, and you deal with evil all the time. And um, and we said, what if we were to expand on on this and and kind of put the prosecutor, um, a prosecutor, into the middle of a battle between um, the 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 ultimate evil, the devil, and society in general and 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 how would that work and i said well you know i think that we could do that because i've got all these cases it kind of just you know it languished for a while and and we didn't we didn't do it um and then he passed away and i had an idea to revive this and, uh, and as i said i spoke to these book agents they told me yeah you could do it time together and um and and i did I spoke to a, a publisher, an owner of a publishing company out here on Long Island, who um, who I had done some uh, publicity with uh, for the other books. And I gave her a call and I, and I said, listen, here's my idea. What do you think? She said, well, I like it, but send me something. Send me a proposal and I, you know, I'll run it past my people. Well, it didn't take very long, uh, uh, Tom. I got a call back from her and, and she said to me, not only do um, do I love it, but my editors loved it. They they said, and and we love it so much. I'm about to offer you a contract to do three books and this series, and and it was great. And Fallen Angel, the book we're about to talk about, is book one. the The second book, I'm going to give you a little preview. It's also called Fallen Angel, but the subtitle is The Battle for the Soul of Brooklyn. And the concept is that Satan has, over the course of centuries kind of made a particular, uh, made a visit to various locations throughout the world. And, um, and he, has, he has instigated and fomented chaos with these horrific crimes that some of which were, allowed, which were solved and others, because of him, were not solved. And when they were solved, there were also situations where he would instigate. He would. He would get himself involved, and witnesses would disappear, mm -hmm. and evidence would disappear, etc. So um, the book starts with a a priest in the Vatican's office of, of exorcisms, who had been doing research because he was familiar, obviously, with Satan and Satan's ways, and saw that that there was a, a an uptick in crimes of of horrific kinds of crimes in Brooklyn, New York. And obviously it was set in Brooklyn because that's where all my cases come from. And he recognized uh, and, 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 and did some research and found that after these crimes were done and committed and, and people were generally acquitted because of strange things happening during the course of investigations or during the trial, he recognized that there were exorcisms that were, commit, that were, were, um, were, were done 
on these defendants uh, after the crimes and after they had been um, they had been acquitted. And, and it was an uptick on them in Brooklyn. And he understood that what was happening is that these guys or women who were put into these posi- this position of committing these crimes by the devil recognized that that was not them, that something possessed them and made them do this stuff. And um, he brought it to the to the his his boss, so to speak, the cardinal in charge of the Vatican's office of exorcisms and uh, and made a case. And they said, you know, he said that you've got something here. They went to the pope. Now, this is, of course, fictionalized, but he went to they went to the pope and the pope recognized that they were onto something and said, call the United States, speak to uh, the president. And he called and set up a meeting with the attorney general. And um, and the cardinal and the priest went over to came over to the United States and made their case. And um, and the people here in America recognized that there was something to this. And they created a special task force, secret special task force of clerics, lawyers, investigators um, who would be the people to watch for these this this um, kind of this this. I guess, pattern to develop. And when it did, go to that particular city in the United States and attack it. And they came to Brooklyn and um, it was necessary to find a prosecutor in Brooklyn to handle these cases. And um, and they recruited a guy from the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office who happened to be the chief of the rackets division in the Brooklyn DA's office. Now, why him? Well, he was kind of at the low point of his his, his professional career because he had convicted a um, a corrupt federal agent, and um, and instead of being um, being afforded accolades for bringing to justice somebody who was, you know, betraying his badge, etc., and betraying his, the trust of the people, he was he was made a pariah. Law enforcement went the other way and said you convicted one of our own. So you know what? Fuck you. We don't we don't like you anymore. So he was stuck. And he was again had to had to kind of find something that was going to bring him back to the favor that he was he was he was enjoying because he was a very successful prosecutor. And um, and he found this case. And it's the case number one in the book. Um, which which involved the, the death of a, of a young woman who was killed completely at random at uh, on her way home from her job, which was to care for uh, people, uh, women in a uh, in a battered woman's uh, battered woman's uh, home. And um, and she when she was killed, mercilessly killed on the street for what what was supposed to be at least portrayed, uh, at least kind of set up by the devil to be a, a purse snatch. Um, the, the newspapers, because of the randomness of it, the newspapers called her an angel. She came from another city. She came to work with battered women in New York, and she wanted to be. Uh, she was in in uh, Columbia University to get her master's degree in in social work, and the mayor said it was in the book, of course, but in real life as well, because it's based on a true story that we lost an angel last night. Now that kind of got Michael's attention. And it also got his attention that the murder was had occurred mm-hmm. on a block that was actually near where he grew up. He used to play ball, stick ball on the block and had friends there. So he takes the case and he figures this is going to be the case that's going to get me back into the good graces when I win this thing. And it was not the greatest case, but it was OK. Uh, the detective on the case was uh, was a guy that Michael knew. And and to and to cut to the to the chase, he wins. And he thinks that, okay, now I'm back. Turns out, no. The memory was long on on the part of these people in his office and law enforcement, and they tell him basically they still treat him like crap. Um, except one, So one day as he's walking home after this 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 win, he meets a, a priest who happens to be standing on the, the steps of his home, and um, and he recruits Michael. To uh, he tells him come to talk to uh, to someone. I need it's important that you talk to them. And Michael knew this priest. He was a monsignor who he grew up with. And uh, and they talk, and he meets the head of this task force. And the task force, the head tells him, we've been watching you, because we have this. They explain what I just explained. 
And um, and that case that you had, that case was the devil was at the at the the the, the center of it. He's the guy that instigated the crime. And and in the story and in the book, there are things that happen and don't happen that kind of tell the reader that something's strange here. And at the end of the case, you realize that it was Satan who set this whole thing up and put roadblocks in Michael's way to um, to Michael is the, the prosecutor's first name. Um, and um, and and he he's able to overcome them. And that kind of impressed the people who were in charge of this organization. And they now told him that you're working for we're working for us. So Michael's off on a va brand new adventure and he's got one problem is that he's against the ultimate evil in the world. And um, and and one of the things that he's told is that Satan does not like to lose. So there is a risk with you taking these cases. He may not and probably will not go after you directly because he wants to play with you. He wants to humiliate mm -hmm. you. He wants to have you lose and become, you know, someone who's laughed at. But be careful because he may come after people who are who who you trust, people who you love and people who are instrumental in achieving what it is that you want to achieve, which is a conviction and, he, and put the bad guy behind bars. Now, that is that was the that's what the book is about. Yeah. What we want what I want to talk about is part two, because it kind of hits home with what I've just said. Part two is a is is based on a case once again that I handled. It was the the murder of a an off duty police officer on July fourth, and um, and and the reason that it made, in addition to him being a police officer, that it made headlines in Brooklyn and and across the city, was that he was a um, he was an African American kid who grew up in the middle of the New York City Housing Authority projects in one of the worst areas of Brooklyn. And um, and and those projects and those housing complexes are not they're not made up necessarily of people who love the police. Um, and and but this particular cop in real life and in my book. Grew up. Admiring the police officers who patrolled the housing project. In fact, one particular guy used to stand outside this kid's home, his building, I should say, every day. And when he would come home from school, they'd have a chat. He realized the kid realized the, the soon to be cop realized that this guy was protecting me, protecting my mother and father and my family and the people who live in this building. And and, and he's made up his mind that he was going to be a cop himself. And he does. And he becomes a police officer. And when he graduates from the police academy, he requests his assignment to be back in those housing projects. Nobody would volunteer for that. In fact, most of the time when people were assigned to those projects, they bitched and moaned because they didn't want to have to face the, uh, you know, the people who were living there. And, and, and you know, the housing projects, I don't know if you've ever they been suck. in one, but yeah. I have as a prosecutor. They're, um, you know, they're, they're not very nice places. But this guy, he, uh, and in the book I call him Robbie, which isn't his, which isn't his, his real name. But so Robbie um, in real life and Robbie in the book begins to work in one of the worst housing projects in the city called the Pink Houses. It's named after some guy named Pink. I don't remember exactly who the, what the name is uh, based on, except it's a person. And... Um, and he is now has now become the idol and, and of all of the people who work there, live there, particularly the elderly people who he makes sure he's he's out and about and protects them from the from the bad guys, the drug dealers and and the muggers and the robbers. And they love him. He's one of their own who has come back to protect them. And in real life, that's the case as well. July 4th. He um, he had just purchased in real life and in the book, just purchased a brand new uh, motorcycle, shiny, brand new motorcycle. And he has a girlfriend who lives in the projects with him and they he picks her up and they're going to Manhattan to a club. Um, but before they do that, they pull up to a um, to a grocery store in the neighborhood. The girl goes inside. His girlfriend goes into the store to buy whatever 
she's going to buy. And in real life, Robbie is sitting on the bike. He's got a helmet on, but nobody knows he's a cop, takes the helmet off. He's waiting for her. And a guy comes across the street from where the bike is parked and pulls a gun and says to Robbie, get off the motorcycle. I want you. And Robbie says, wait a second, I'm a cop. You're not going to rob me. This is real life and in a book. And in, and the guy panics and, and goes crazy and shoots Robbie in the head. Just complete, just shoots just him. Execution. Yeah. Yep. He, and, and what happens is Robbie goes down, the motorcycle falls on top of him. And the guy then goes up to the motorcycle and grabs it and tries to lift it off the, the body. He can't do it. And there's people around. There are a lot of people. It's July 4th evening. It's the night and people are around and out and about. And he now takes off. He panics and takes off and runs. Okay. In the book, the next day, and I'll tell you the motivation for the robbery in a second. In the book, the next day, Michael is called to the scene and he's told about the 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 murder by his his the Monsignor, who's now his liaison to the to the secret group, who had gotten a call from the head of the group saying that I believe that this is our man, that this is Satan's behind us. It's a cop. And there were certain other things that happened during the course of this that told them that they thought, but they weren't sure. And they, and they want Michael to go to the scene and they want him to sniff around. They want him to ask around. And, and when he gets there. In the book, there is a a riot almost going on. Everybody is out and about and they're screaming for the cops. They're screaming for the, the, the cops to be brought to justice. And Michael has no idea what he's talking, what they're talking about. The cops, what are you saying? Well, apparently there's a rabble rouser in the crowd who I describe as someone with these red dreadlocks with this skewed up face, etc. And he is telling people in the crowd that it was a plainclothes unit of cops who went and hassled the black cop and wound up killing. Him. And now they want us to believe that it was a robber and he's rabber and, and there's almost a riot time. And and Michael now goes up to the head, the, the, the lieutenant on, on the scene and says to him, listen, I, I need I let me go talk to these people. Let me tell them, let me set the record straight. And he goes, he walks over to the, and his intention is to talk to the rabble rouser. But when he gets to the crowd, he looks around and this big mouth is nowhere to be found. And he's now questioned, and he says, makes his speech anyway. And he grabs, and, and a couple of, of the men in the crowd come over to him and say, um, Mr. Gioka, thank you for, that's his last name, Michael Gioka. Thank you for, for what, you know, what you said. Next the guy who was creating all of the the this citizen the guy who lived in the and said listen i've lived here for a long time i know all these people out on the street here i never saw that guy ever before i don't know who he is and he just disappeared well as you read the book you get the understanding that this is this is satan he's he's creating this thing now the robbery how does satan get into this in real life the robber has um, come back from Baltimore, Maryland. He went down to Baltimore to um, to to visit his his girlfriend's uh, friend, and there's a party, and and they buy some drugs, and and instead of um, getting to the party with the drugs, they get stopped by undercover police officers in Baltimore and get arrested. He's got cash on him. His girlfriend doesn't. So he's able to post bail for himself. He tells her, don't worry about it. I'm going to go back to Brooklyn. I'll get the money, come back and bail you out. Okay. In the book, same thing. The problem is that the shooter, the soon to be shooter is having no luck raising this money. He tries to, um, to, to, to rob people on the street. Nobody has I mean, he's not robbing people in, in, in upper the yeah. Upper East Side of Manhattan where people have money. He's trying to rob people who live in a poor neighborhood in Brooklyn. Of course, they're not going to have anything. And um, and he and he wants to now rob the store that Robbie and his girlfriend had parked in front of until he went over to it and saw that 
earlier and saw that it had plexiglass inside. He couldn't do anything. He couldn't rob the store. So in the book, he's sitting on the curb lamenting his inability to raise money for his girlfriend when he's approached by someone who introduces himself as a, as a guy named Jiz, J-I-Z. Sits next to him, and he sits down just after Robbie and his girlfriend rolled up with their motorcycle. And Jiz says to the soon-to-be shooter, nice bike, huh? Guy must have money. And he starts talking to him and essentially tells him, that's your out. You're looking for money? That's your out. That's where you go. Rob that bike. Rob him. He must have money, etc. Now, I describe who he is. And, and, and this is not a secret. Anybody who gets the book, they'll know right away that I have made these characters. This guy, Jizz, is clearly Satan again. But in order for the reader to figure out who he is, I always talk about a description. What did he look like? And I have him, each time Satan appears as a human in the book and in the stories, he has the mark, what I, what I call, particularly in this, in, at the end of book, or in book two, as the mark of the devil. He's got this screwed up mole kind of growth on the left side of his face. And this guy, Jizz, gets the shooter to go across the street and do what he did shot and killed this hero hero to everybody in the neighborhood now the police do an investigation and and they come up with um they come up with three eyewitnesses and uh, and in real life i got to tell you tom this is what happened they come up with three eyewitnesses and each of them each of them um Although they didn't know who the shooter was by name, they kind of knew that he hung around the neighborhood. They, they recognized him. And, um, and, and to make a, a very long story short, by the time I, Mike Vecchione, gets involved in the case, the three, the three individuals, the three witnesses are brought to police precinct and they give statements in which they lay out what happened. And in the book, of course, they don't say anything about the police, plainclothes police doing it. They all are stand-up people, and they say, no, no, no. The guy was, yeah. it was some guy who robbed them, and, and that's what this is all about. So um, in real life, they tell me, uh, after the police question them, I go out and question them, and they tell me what they saw. And they saw essentially what I just told you. Now, the question is, how do we get this guy? How, how do they, how do they, they finally get him? Well, in book, in the real life and in the book, the police ask around and, and finally someone gives them a tip that it might be, and they give the name. Now, again, um, uh, you know, I'm shortening this. There's a lot to these stories, but I can't do that, in, yeah. you know, in the short period of time that we had. They ultimately bring in this particular individual, the shooter. And the three eyewitnesses pick him out at a lineup. So the cops know, man, we think we got the right guy here. And they do. They do have the right guy. That same day, they call me to the precinct, me, Vecchione. And, um, and also in the book, they call Gioka the potential shooter. The police have already questioned them and for lots of reasons and i think he ultimately realized he screwed up big time he confesses he confesses to everything and um and he confessed to me in the precinct that the day and and i and michael gioka take a very very um big chance in asking a series of questions about the gun the gun has never been recovered and wasn't recovered when i got involved and when gioka gets involved and I had for for him and Gioka has is where'd the gun come from? Well, he answers. And he says, I, I got it from guy on the street. The most important question is, where is it now? Yeah. And um and he again says, I'll tell you. And he tells me 
in real life, and he tells Gioka that what happened after the shooting, he ran to his mother's house, apartment building. He knew the guy downstairs from his mother who lived downstairs from his mother, and he brought the gun to him and asked him to hide it. And he says, it's there, it's still there. Now, question is, are we going to get it, or has the guy gotten rid of it? And the police in real life and in the book go out to this place and they get the gun. Now they bring it back to the precinct. And the guy is still there with me and I'm still waiting. And and I say to myself, I can seal this case with a series of couple of questions. And Gioka, of course, agrees with me because he looked and he says to himself, I'm going to have I'm going to show him the gun. And I'm going to have him identify it if he'll if he'll do it. Now, that is a risk. Tom. And when I started to ask the questions in real life, I looked at the detective who was in the room with me and he was like, are you kidding? I, if this guy says no, that's not the gun. We've just undone everything yeah. that you you did. Yeah. So, Gioka, um, the detective, I think in the book, I don't remember if, I, if he calls Michael outside, but. He's like holding his breath. And um, and in real life and in the book, I show him the gun. And God was on my side, I have to say. And he was clearly on Gioka's side because the shooter identifies the gun. Said, yeah, that's the gun. That's the gun I used. And, um, and we now have, I believe, one of the most solid cases that I've ever had as a prosecutor, and Gioka thinks the same way. Now, what else do I have? I have? So I have three eyewitnesses. I have the confession. I have the gun. I got him identifying the gun, but there's more. Remember I told you that after the shooting, the motorcycle fell on top of the, shoot, on top of, uh, the, the victim, the cop. And the, and the bad guy went over, grabbed it, to lift it up so he could steal it. So the witnesses told that to the detectives, and they told it to me. So I said, well, did you dust the car, the, the thing? And they said, yeah, we did. And sure enough, they get a palm print, they get fingerprints, they put them into the computer. Whose prints are they? The shooter. So now, I mean, think about this case. I have the guy touching the, the actual subject of the theft, hmm. the, the motorcycle. I have the gun. I have the, oh, and the, the person who he, we got the gun from, came in and told us that the shooter brought it to him and told him to hide it. Three eyewitnesses. And by the way, the, Af the, 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 the deceased in real, in real life, as I said, Robbie was an African-American. The shooter, African-American. All of the, the, the witnesses, African-American. The guy whose apartment the gun was found in, African-American. Okay, so there's not a single racial aspect to this case at all. No one if they look at it, it's going to say, well, you know, you had three eyewitnesses who were white. Of course, they hate black people, which is what you have to think of when you're a prosecutor in, in, in the real world. So Gioka has the strongest case you could possibly have, right? And so does Vecchione. We go to trial. And, um, and, and jury selection in Brooklyn means that you're going to get potential jurors that are more than likely 65 to 70 percent minorities mm -hmm. okay and which we did we had a jury of i would say probably of the 12 we probably had eight uh african americans you may have had a hispanic and a couple of whites and i lay and and gioka lays this case out okay lays the whole thing out it it all goes spectacularly well. Now, during, in the book, during some of the preparation for the trial, I've also inserted as the writer some things that the devil has done to undermine the case, etc. And 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 you'll have to have your readers, your readers, will have, listeners have to buy the book. Buy the book. Out what I'm talking well, about. Go support Mike. Buy the book. Yeah, so. yeah. Thank you. And in real life, I pick a jury, and in. The book, Gioka Picks a Jury, and it's a great jury, I think. I remember distinctly that the last two jurors, numbers 11 and 12, when we were about to, to select them, and, and 
jury selection is a misnomer. You don't select people. What you do is you reject people and hope that the people that you keep are people who are good for your case on both sides. So you interview a series of 12. The prosecution gets 20 challenges to knock out the people he or she doesn't like. The defense gets 20 challenges to knock out people he or she doesn't like until you get a jury, okay? So when people say it's jury selection, it's really jury rejection because you're the people that you have that, that are left are people who weren't rejected, so to speak, okay? So the last two jurors who were ready to, to sit were both young African-American women. And when I say young, I'm talking about 30, 35, not teenagers. Um, but I have a defendant who is black, but I have a victim who is an African-American hero, a young guy who's in his late 20s, who gave who who assigned essentially assigned himself to to work in the projects. And Gioka in his thinking in the book says, I got no problem with with these two. There's no problem at all. You know, so he was running out of challenges anyway. I kept them, he keeps them. The trial goes on and all the evidence goes in. Now, in the book, not in real life, in the book, I would say maybe the, maybe the next, not the last day, but towards the end of the trial, a court officer is, happens to be out in front of the courthouse on the lunch break. And he sees the two jurors, 11 and 12, become engaged in conversation with a woman who's pushing a baby carriage. And he's he thought it was curious, so he kind of stood there and watched and uh, away from them. They didn't see him. He was away from them. And he he sees that they're laughing and joking, and he says, ah, you know, these people know each other, and, and it's a baby, etc. And he And when the lunch break is over, the two jurors have to go back to the courthouse this woman with the baby carriage kind of passes by him. He gets somewhat of a look at her, and there's nothing that he thinks is suspicious at all. So he doesn't bring it to anyone's attention. He doesn't tell the judge. He doesn't think anything of it. It's just three people talking on the street. One happened to have a baby, you know, and they're talking, and they're, they were, you know, looking at the baby and playing with it, etc. So the case gets to the point of summations. And by the way, the real cop's family is in the in the audience when I did it. And in the book, the mother, father and brother are sitting in the first row of uh, of the of the courthouse of the courtroom. And they're listening to summations. Right. Summations are over. I remember and Gioka plays up the idea that Robbie is a is a hero. He came back to protect his own. Um, he didn't forget what he learned when he was a kid about the cops and he, and he wanted to make life better for the people who lived in these housing projects. And, and everybody loved them. And of course, I did the same thing. Um, so jury goes out to deliberate. And um, one day passes, no verdict. Two day passes, no verdict. Now, I can now I'm going to tell you I'm going to step out of the Gioka persona and go into the Vecchione persona. When this was happening, I, Tom, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I said, this is the best case I've ever had in terms of the quality yeah. and quantity of evidence. Airtight. It was absolutely. And, you know, you never, never say something is airtight because jinx it yeah it's it's but this is as close to being airtight as possible and yeah. i got to tell you something well I, I don't want to spoil let me let me finish the story so gioka is in the same position and every time you know they have questions the jurors so the judge asks everybody back into the courtroom they read evidence back they do all kinds of of the answers legal questions and every time gioka and vecchione walk into the courtroom there were robbie's family sitting there and there's no verdict um, finally, after I don't know how many days, I just don't remember, they get a note. The judge gets a note saying that they are hopelessly deadlocked, the jury. They can't arrive at a decision. 
So the Gioka judge sends them back. The Vecchione judge sends them back and says, keep working. You know, you got it. We're trying to resolve this. Again, I'll make a long story short. Another note, hopelessly deadlocked. Another note. Finally, the judge, in my case and also in the Gioka case, says, I can't. There's nothing I can do. We can't. They're going to have to declare a mistrial. And um, he's, I remember in real life and also in the book, he's the judges as shocked as I was. Of course, the defense attorney is happy as hell because he only needs one person to say not guilty. And there's a hung jury and he got it. He got so he he, he doesn't know what the, the reason is. Neither do uh, neither does Gioka, neither does Vecchione. So after the judge releases the, the jury, before he released, no, I'm sorry, after he releases the jury, he says to, um, he turns to Gioka and he turns, and he had turned to me, and he said, shaking his head, like, I'm puzzled by this whole thing. I can't imagine what happened. He said, and, and he was candid with the defense attorney in real, you know, this is one of the strongest cases I've ever seen. So he says to me, he says to Gioka, and he says to me, when can you try? The answer is tomorrow. The defense attorney is like, no, 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 I need some time. Blah, blah, blah. So anyway, puts it off for two weeks. So in the book and in real life, I go to the jury room and Gioka goes to the jury room to find out what's going on. Well, the jurors were still there. And jurors 11 and 12, the two African-American women, were sitting in a corner. The rest of the jurors were getting their stuff together, and they they, they talked to me, the, the foreperson and someone else on the jury. Not not white people, but other black people. The foreperson was black. One of the other jurors was black. And and I said, what? what, what tell me, what happened? And the foreperson looks over at those two in the corner. And he goes, he he, he says to Gioka and, and said to me, he moves his head like them. I said, what are you talking about? Apparently, what they said to the other jurors was, we don't care what this is. We don't care how strong it is. We ain't, this is what they he quoted that one of them saying, we ain't putting another young black man in jail. Yeah. No matter how much he, even how though, guilty he is, we even, ain't putting him in jail. Killed, even though he, even though the black man killed a black man, that's you know. Yeah. 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 So, um, in the book, of course, the person who put in their head that they shouldn't convict them was the woman who was talking to them with the baby. And how do we know that? Because. The court officer, after he's sitting, standing there with Gioka while he's talking and they find out it's these two. After the jury leaves, he goes up to Gioka and says to him, I got to tell you something, which I never told anybody before. He tells him about what he saw. And Gioka now says to him, did you get a look at this woman? He goes, yeah, she passed me. I didn't I can't identify her, but I but she did have something that. If I saw it again, I'd recognize it to be her. Guess what she has? The mark on the left cheek. So Gioka knows exactly what happened. Yeah. In real life, of course, that's not the case. In real life, I try the case again in two weeks. Fifteen minutes the jury was out. Yeah with a conviction. I got a conviction in 15 minutes. In the book, I have to change the idea. And what I did was I had Gioka go back to the judge with the court officer and the defense attorney and tell the judge exactly what he saw on the street. And in the book, Gioka says, Your Honor, I believe there's jury tampering. I don't know who this woman is, but I believe that's what happened. And he agrees. The judge. Why in the book he agrees? Because he knows that the case was so strong, something had to happen. Yeah. Gioka asks him to try it when they try the case again to sequester the jury, keep them under guard. They would never out on the street, always with with uh, court officers around them. And he agrees to do it. And of course, 
In the book, the new jury, the four-person is an African-American woman about the same age as um, Robbie's mom, who was sitting in the first row for the entire trial. And when the verdict was announced, the four-person stood up, looked over at Mrs. Robbie's mother, I forgot what her last name was in the in the book, smiles when she answers the question, how do you how do you find? And she looks at her and says, we find him guilty mm. with this big smile on her face. Well, that was everybody was happy. Mrs. Uh, Robbie's mom and brother and father are hugging Michael and they, you know, because he had, was candid with them. He told them what was going on. And um, and that seemed in the book that is I give the impression that that's the end, right? But remember what I told you before, what he was cautioned about in terms of revenge being extracted. So what happens? He's dressed the next morning. He's about to go out, and, and I think going to a um, to his sister's daughter's. Um, uh, and that's, this is one of the things that the devil did. His sister in the book, Michael's sister, is adopting a baby from Korea. And uh, and and they, Michael, and she's out and about. She's at JFK Airport. And something happens in the book in which they believe that the baby is not coming. So, But the baby ultimately does come. And Michael is the godfather. So he's getting ready to go to the christening the next day. And, he, and he's got the radio on. I mean, sorry, TV on. And the news says that there was this tragedy. Someone was killed, pushed in front of a subway train um, and, and died. And um, he gets a phone call and he finds out the following, that the ju jury foreperson who smiled at Mrs. Uh, at Robbie's mom went to went shopping and they sh there's a shopping area around the courthouse to buy her daughter a birthday present. When she came back, she had to go home on the subway. She's on the subway, and this strange-looking dude with a fucked-up mark on his left cheek, just as the train came in, pushed her in front of the train, and she dies, and she's killed. And Michael finds out about it and realizes what they had been talking to him about in terms of he goes to the christening and christening is in part three, the first part of it. And he's despondent because he believes that he caused the death of this particular woman. So that is how we set up, you know, the idea that no, there are no regard to the devil. There's always going to be a problem. And part three and part four are other cases. And, and there's all, all sorts of machinations. And maybe if you have me back, we'll talk about three and four. Absolutely. Or Absolutely. So, so my my, I, I I really believe Tom, as I said before, that um, the book is worthwhile because if you're a true crime fan, the cases are true crimes. If you're a novel, you like novels. Well, I've got you know the the kind of fantasy in there, which I call this, by the way, I call it a true crime fantasy, and um, and and I think it's um, I, I have gotten very very good reviews from anybody who's read the book. And from I, people who I don't know, well, so it's I've not, given it as well. I think it. I think it's yeah, your best you have, work. Yeah. So, so Fallen Angel is the name of the book. I encourage your listeners and 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 viewers to go get it. And um, and while I'm at it, I'm going to plug 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 one more book, and that is the one before this, which was Homicide is My Business. So if you're yeah, really a Luigi true crime fan, yep, right, that's a book about a Sicilian hitman who comes to Brooklyn and um, and has one of the most colorful and strangest lives as a as a mafia hitman that you could ever imagine and uh, luigi the zip yep yeah, luigi the zip and one little thing i don't know if i mentioned this to you the last time we talked about fallen angel i have since optioned the book oh yeah there is a there is a writer um and a producer attached the the pilot for the premiere episode has been written and um, and this guy is a guy that's worked on television before. He's he's written and produced for Mayans, which is an offshoot of the Sons of Anarchy series. He's also written and produced for The Sinner, which is the um, which has been an anthology series with a detective. Um, 
and um, and he's he's he loves the idea of this supernatural aspect to this thing. And and the the pilot is a little <laughs> a little darker than than Fallen Angel, but it's um it's really well worthwhile. And and he's got a, a different way to differentiate regular people from the devil. And I'm not going to tell your 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 folks about it at this point. But instead of the the mark on the left cheek, he's got another way for for designating who the devil is in his in his pilot. And um, so the problem is, and this is where I was getting to, is that everything was going great. We had it all done. We're ready to take it out to the marketplace. The writers go on strike in Hollywood and nothing, nothing is getting done. Nothing. In fact, I also optioned Friends of the Family, which is the first book that I did involving the mafia cops, mm -hmm. two detectives on the mob payroll. That's been optioned. And um, and the people in behind that are um, is one of the guys from uh, I don't know if you, your your folks or you ever watched the the Americans, which was a terrific series on FX. The, um, the one of the the guys that one of the stars of that show was an FBI agent who was their next door neighbor who they were trying to always keep away from their activities. His name is Noah Emmerich, and he's been in a lot of a lot of shows. Um, he's attached to the friends of the family. He and his brother, his brother was the head of Warner Brothers and now the head of Warner Brothers Television. So once again, optioned it, ready to go out and get directors and, and they were going to interview uh, 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 actors all on hold until the writer's strike is over in Hollywood. So anyway, Fuck that's that. the that's so story of my life. That's so, story of my life. That's so infuriating, but yeah, is what it is. Um, but so, I was going to say, guys, go into the description, grab the book, uh, Fallen Angel, grab uh, Homicide is My Business, Crooked Brooklyn, uh, Friends of the Family, or Behind the Curtain, Behind the Murder Curtain. Um, yep. And Mike, shoot me a, shoot me a text, and uh, just so I can remember to, to, to schedule you so I don't let it, I don't let so much time go by next time. I, I will do that, Tom. Thank you again for having me. Absolutely, and, um, dude. Love having you on. Thank you for coming on, man. And, um, yeah. And you'll send me a link, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I'll this? Email, okay. you, email you the Rumble link and the Spotify link. Good. Okay. All right, brother. So, Mike Vecchione. Thank you so much, sir. Guys, please go into the description. Please go grab the book. Please go support Mike. Leave a good review. Till next time, Mr. Vecchione. Thank you so much for your time. As always, where the hell is the mouse, Christian? There it is. I don't have my glasses on. Thank you so much. Recording Take care. Stopped. Till next time. Peace.